God's Word together to Genesis 1, Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. Of course, that is page 1 of your Bibles. Hopefully, you don't have to um, remind too many of that. Um, <clears throat> Genesis 1, 26 through 31. First chapter of the Bible. We are spending um, quite a while here in the first three chapters. Um, I think this is the fourth message now, just on the first chapter of uh, God's Word. And last Sunday, we heard um, the teaching of the Scriptures that humanity was made in the image of God. And we'll hear that again today, um, uh, reading again the passage that we considered last Sunday. And one person that I spoke with after the service was, was still a little bit unsure of what it means that humanity is made in God's image. And it was a, a, a helpful conversation for me. And so even as we begin today, I want to give a great little definition that I found so that when we read those words again today, we can have a, a good, maybe fuller understanding of what this means. Uh, the theologian Dr. David Dockery has written a book titled Created in the Image of God, and in that uh, he gives a great memorable little teaching about what this means. He said, humanity being made in the image of God has rationality, morality, spiritual, spirituality, and personality. So this means that we are set apart from the rest of creation because we have um, a mind and a conscience and a soul and personhood. And so we'll hear that again today, man and woman made equally in the image of God, having value uh, that is set apart from the rest of creation. And then we'll also hear... Um, how God gives some instructions then to not just Adam and Eve, but to all of humanity through them as well. And so let's pray that God would speak clearly to us this morning before we look at the word together. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we pray that you would speak to us, that we all by faith would hear your voice, that we would know more fully how you have created us what you have created us to be, and what you have created us to do. God, we pray that you would give clarity to each of us in this very important matter of why you have made humanity. Lord, we pray that you would, um, that you would remove from us any confusion about these things and that your word would, would penetrate through any darkness or misunderstanding that I would say what is pleasing in your sight today as, we, as I expound upon the scriptures that you have given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. 
and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Living as a Christian today is different in many ways to the Christian life of people in other cultures and other centuries. And we have so much to learn from the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, not just from the cloud of witnesses that we read about in the scriptures, people who have followed the Lord, um, lived by faith that we read about in the Bible, but we have a lot to learn from the history of the church as well and how we can live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, how we can walk by faith. And one area where we can gain insight, not only from God's Word, but from the historic church, is learning how to discern God's will for our lives, how to live as Christians in this world that God has made. So if we thought last week about what, being, what a human being is and what a human being is meant to be, today we shift our focus a little bit forward towards the practical implications of those verses. Having been made in God's image, then what comes next? What happens the rest of our lives after God creates us? The historic church has much to teach us, and, and I want to show an image of, of literally a historic church, and, and this illustration really comes from a, the, a good book called Work and Worship by Matthew Kamick and Corey Wilson. And so the image is of a cathedral in Salisbury, England, a spectacular church, a beautiful church building. The cathedral literally towers over the rest of the city. Uh, just like the city of Ripon, England, the cathedral is by far the largest building, the tallest building in this village. This is a majestic, awe-inspiring, even glorious building. The main spire of that building, which is still the tallest of any spire in England today, was completed in the year 1320. 1320, that has stood there for so many centuries. So we would see a building like that in what is actually a, a pretty small village, and we would maybe wonder, why did people create that? Why did people give their time and their energy um, their money to create such a spectacular thing, especially in uh, those Middle Ages where, where people were living a very um, hand-to-mouth kind of lifestyle, living workaday lives and, and just hoping that God would provide food for them for the day or the week or the rest of the month. Why would people give so much to create that in the middle of their town? Well, of course, we know that the cathedral wasn't just a place of worship, but it represented in some ways, and even a small way, uh, the glory of God among regular people. And so these people would get together in towns like Salisbury, and they would say, we need to make something that, that would remind us that God is so much greater than, than our house or, or just our little family or the place where we work, but that, that the, the greatness of the cathedral was kind of symbolic of the greatness of God over the rest of life. And so we could think of a medieval farmer working out in those fields surrounding the town of Salisbury. 
And the cathedral would have been visible to that farmer working in those beautiful green fields. And we can easily imagine that farmer working hard all day on a summer day out in the heat and just stopping for a moment to catch his breath and and he looks upward and he sees the cathedral there from his farm being reminded in that church how God has blessed him to care for the earth that God has made. That God has enabled him to even make the earth more fruitful with his labor. And so the cathedral would have been visible from all of the surrounding fields and farms to encourage, but also to instruct people in their work that God was over it all. We could also imagine two women in the Salisbury Market, which would have been right nearby a cathedral, as was often the case. The market would even be um, sort of extending out from the cathedral in, in, um, in ancient towns, medieval towns. And we can imagine two women in that market who have gone to, to uh, barter with one another about um, some vegetables. One of their husbands has grown with some chickens the other family has made, has, has taken care of, and they're going to, to make a deal in the marketplace there. And again, the cathedral is right over it, symbolizing that God is over uh, their business dealings. God is over their home, and, and even that God is providing food for them each day. And the cathedral would have been kind of an, an ever-present vision in the medieval town, and that represents uh, hopefully, how people would have thought of God's ever-present watching over them as they, they cared for the earth and go about their business of each day. So although our Reformed forefathers have given us great teaching on the connection between um, God and our daily lives, I think that we'll all be tempted at times to separate the sacred from the normal, normal routines of our home life. As they point out in their book, Work and Worship, um, it's pretty likely that you can't see a church from your workplace like that medieval farmer would have been able to see. And so maybe with that could come a little bit less sense for God's authority and blessing over the work that you do. So Genesis 1 tells us that God is over all of creation, not just at the moment that he made creation, but he has entrusted us to care for the world that belongs to him. He's entrusted us to care for the world that belongs to him. And let's not skip too quickly past the first interaction that God has with Adam and Eve. Notice in Genesis 1, the first part of verse 28, before God gives any commands, and God blessed them, period. And God blessed them. And so God began his creation of Adam and Eve with blessing. We begin our worship services with blessing, the blessing of grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father to us, the people He has made in His image. God loves to bless His creation. God loves to bless the people that He has formed in His image. We can see all throughout history, we can see all throughout our lives that God is not stingy with blessing His people. Let's imagine today again that medieval farmer or the townsperson lifting their eye up to the cathedral during the course of the day. They would see that, that spectacular building and that they would think, wow, God is far more glorious, impressive, 
and steadfast than that beautiful building. And that God is watching over me in a personal way that certainly no building ever could. That, that, that the God that in some very small ways that, that is represented by, by that church in the middle of that town is, is over the whole earth. And Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, belong to God. And so much of the rest of this passage is about being productive with that knowledge that God has, has made us and has, has set us over his creation in a special way. But we have to start with God's blessing for us. If we're going to be productive at all, we need to be blessed by God first. Psalm 27 gives this very same teaching. Psalm 27 is uh, another psalm or another passage of the Bible that has to do with having children. It's the, the famous quiverful passage of the Bible that gets a lot of attention in the, the last part of Psalm 27, but the Psalm 27, the earlier part, begins with the essential reminder that unless the Lord builds a house, the laborers work in vain. Unless the Lord blesses you, unless the Lord blesses our church, all of our effort, all of our toil, all of our cultivating is done in vain. And so we begin with blessing. So we don't know the exact blessing that God gave Adam and Eve, but we can be sure that the reason for his blessing was that he loved them. The reason for his blessing is that he loves you. One of the themes of the prophetic books of the Bible, and this is especially true in books like uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah, is that as people are getting started with their work, as these prophets are getting started, there's some some worry about if God could really work through Isaiah or Jeremiah or Jonah to fulfill his purposes. There's some trepidation for the prophets quite often about speaking the word of God. This is true of uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, Esther, Moses, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, all wondering how could God use someone like me to serve a great God like him? How could God use a sinner like me to do something meaningful, lasting, and even good in the world that God has made? Well, in love, God blessed those biblical characters and you with faith. In love, God blesses us with new life in Christ. In love, God blesses you with an understanding of his word so that you would be a, a, a productive Christian in whatever calling God places upon you, like the vision of the cathedral would inspire someone to work hard for God. The Lord gives us visions of Christ throughout each day to bless us and motivate us to serve him. Just as he said to Joshua as they're beginning their battles in, in the, um, the promised land, do not be afraid, I'll be with you wherever you go. So God blesses Adam and Eve in this way with his presence, with his love. He blesses us similarly today. So how can we serve God? How can we follow the commands that we find in a passage like Genesis 1? Well, it would be too bad if we got too abstract about interpreting this passage. Sometimes as ministers we can be a little bit guilty of... Um, reading so much into a passage and almost failing just to say the simple words that are on the page. But 
But we shouldn't complicate this passage too much. The most basic interpretation is that it is good to have children. It is good to have children, to, to have kids. Um, I recognize right away that even as I say that, that there could be a sting associated with that proclamation of the goodness of children for those who long to have children of their own, maybe who don't have the relationship with your children that you would like to have, or, or especially for those who have lost children, that, that a passage like this could, could stir up many very serious and strong emotions. And so we need to say that the ultimate goal of every person is, is not to have children today, but, but we, we should also say, though, that it is a blessing to have children, to be fruitful and multiply, literally. It is a good thing. During my premarital counseling sessions with couples, I tell them that the biblical teaching about marriage and sex is that a couple should be open to the Lord multiplying their family through the blessing of children. And that this is a part of marriage. It's a part of family life to be open to the blessing of God on that family of children. Some people argue against that in our culture today. They give reasons why having children might be a bad idea. One person will say the world is already so full of people that it's irresponsible to add any more um, children to this world. The next person says, how could you bring a child into the world with all of the problems that we have in our world today? They might say, well, this might have been good for Adam and Eve because there was just them in the world, and so they needed to populate the world, multiply, but they would say that isn't really matter for today anymore because we have 8 billion people in the world. But the Christian has children to bless the world. This is one of the clear teachings of Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the Bible, that to be fruitful and multiply is a way to bless the world that God has made. We have four children, my wife and I, four little ones, not so little as they were when I arrived a while ago, and they are a blessing to me. Sometimes you hear all the bad things about that happens in a pastor's family from the pulpit. <laughs> But our children are a blessing to my wife and I. I. I would guess that they're probably also a blessing to you here in the church and to their classrooms, to their friends, to the rest of our family. That children, it has to be said based on this passage, are a blessing. It's wonderful to have children to care for, to learn from, especially as a, as a parent. Um, the lessons I've learned about God's fatherhood of me are so profound as I care for them, pay attention to them, and help them through each day. So when I hear the argument where people say that the world is too bad for more children to be added to it, my response as a Christian father is to say, I hope my kids are a part of the solution for this world. We need to raise up children not to be afraid of the world, not to want to escape the world, but to be fruitful in the world, to bless people, Hopefully they'll be born again in Christ. They'll live with faith in Jesus so that they would be a blessing, part of the solution, not part of the problem. If they are born again in Christ, they won't merely be consumers who take up space. Isn't it sad that that's the way that people talk about kids in our culture today? You know, this was popular a few years ago 
that people would say, you know, having a kid today will cost you $120,000 over the course of that kid's 18 years or something like that, almost quantifying with a, a dollar amount how much a child would cost a person. What a sad thing or sad way to talk about children, a life, someone made in the image of God. Brothers and sisters, children are a blessing. They will bring life to people by serving the Lord. And that's our goal as a church, as we raise up little ones, teaching them the gospel, that they would be fruitful wherever they go. So all of us, whether we have biological children or spiritual children, the command here is to invest in the next generation so that they can further multiply God's blessings in the world. That they would also be fruitful and multiply. So in addition to having kids, the passage has been interpreted, interpreted I would say, two ways more broadly. And this, um, like the image of God, a passage that we considered last week, this passage has whole libraries of books written about it. And we can think of how the passage encourages humanity to cultivate the earth and how it also is God's ordination that humanity would create culture that is pleasing to God and benefits people. And so uh, two words, cultivate and culture, are really derived from this passage, which is often called the cultural mandate. And so we first can think of cultivating the physical world, caring for the environment, caring for the world that God has given us a special place in to rule over. And again, we can think of a farmer in, in this case. I, I love living in a town with farms all around, serving on council with, with farmers, people who, who literally work the land and know so much more about cultivating the physical world than certainly I do. We could think of a farmer as maybe an example where, where the farmer cares for the land. Why? So that it will become more fruitful. It would be foolishness to exploit the land. And, and so the farmer is wise in, in how, how he cares for the land so that it would become more and more fruitful, not just for this generation, but for subsequent generations as well. And it's the same for any person in whatever calling we have, whether we are farmers or work in offices or schools or in homes, that it's, it's our command from God to cultivate what God has put under our care so that it would become more fruitful. And this does include, literally, the land that we live on. In our passage today, we find the clear instruction to tend to the good functioning of the physical world. And it's not just in this passage, it's a theme throughout the scriptures. Psalm 8, we have another description of this work of cultivation. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. This is you referring to God. That God put everything under our feet. All flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. God has set us over it to care for it. Or think of Jesus' parable of the talents. In that parable, we learn that, that talents, um, sort of a deposit is given to three different servants, and God expects each um, deposit to, to grow under the care of each servant. And um, it's the servant who just sort of preserves what he's been given and doesn't cause it to grow that is actually judged by, by the master. So in that parable, 
We learn that simply to preserve what God has given, actually God expects more from us than that. The Lord has given humanity skills and abilities and ingenuity so that the blessings that he entrusted to us would even become more fruitful, and that includes the physical world. That includes the environment. And so I did quite a bit of reading. What are some practical ways that just a a regular person can do better, maybe, in caring for the environment, the physical world that God has made and has set us over? And um, interestingly, one of the, in, in one of the blog posts that I read from um, the Christian Reformed Church um, Office of Social Justice uh, gave the number one reason is something that I would guess you would want to do if you want to save money, and that is reducing food waste. So just not wasting food is actually a good way to care for the world that God has made. Um, it's right in line, actually, with the teaching of question and answer 110 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which teaches about stealing and expands the command about stealing to include that God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. And so being wasteful, um, being wasteful of food, ordering too much food that you'd know you'd never finish at a restaurant, um, training our children again to to clean their plate. It's a good thing, actually. Um, Just using the food that's in our pantries before we go and, and fill our pantries with other things. To use the food that we have instead of letting it expire and go to waste, is actually one of the best ways that we can care for the physical environment, the world that God has given us a special place to, uh, to rule over. Remember that after Jesus fed 5,000, do you remember what happened at the end of that story? He told the disciples to go and pick up all the leftovers that none would be wasted. And so even as Jesus, who gives this plentiful food of fish and bread, to more than 5,000 people, and, and it would seem like there's an endless supply of food in that story. Jesus said, none of it should be wasted, though. Go and pick it up, collect it, so that it could be used uh, maybe the next day for those who are hungry, um, or even later that day. So for the medieval farmer, again, thinking about that cathedral looming over um, his farm in, in, in the town, uh, that farmer doesn't just aspire... Um, to uh, just remember that God sees him for the blessing that it is, but, but he's accountable to God to care for the world that God has made him ruler over. Um, so there's the blessing of seeing the vision of the church, but then there's also the requirement that God has set us up over the world that he's made to care for it in a way that pleases him. So one of the lists, uh, um, sorry, beyond the, so beyond the simple actions of not wasting food and not littering. Um, This is really ultimately about your heart. Do you care for the physical world around you? Do you understand that God has has set us, has given us responsibility to care for the world? Do you desire to do a good job at that? Unfortunately, this biblical matter has been so politicized today that Christians can become defensive whenever we start talking about caring for the environment, it's, that ought not be the case. Based on this passage and many others in Scripture, the Christian does not have to be defensive when st- people start talking about caring for the world, the physical world, the, cre- the creation, the environment around us. It's a simple command. 
to cultivate what God has made. The other historic interpretation of this passage leans away from uh, the physical cultivation of the world and towards creating a culture that is pleasing to God, that is good for humanity to live in. So this is woven into the command to be fruitful. And so this fruitfulness isn't just about having children and multiplying in the literal sense, but hopefully we are always striving towards a culture that bears fruit, that is pleasing in God's sight. So this isn't just about the physical sense of cultivating the world, but God desires that people create societies that are productive and fruitful and industrious, where people work hard, where people have values in the work that they do to, to tell the truth, to, uh, to be honest in business dealings, not to be greedy or want to steal, but to, to create a culture where life thrives for everyone. Again, like the cathedral that towers over the, over the city of Salisbury, those people and those cultures that keep God at the center who remember that God is above the farm, God is above the market, God is above the family, God is above the courthouse, will be those cultures that are most blessed to live in. So if we keep reading in Genesis, past the story of Adam and Eve's fall into sin, we find that the culture goes way off the rails immediately. The culture of humanity, even when humanity is just maybe less than 100 people altogether, the culture is, is utterly corrupt in those first chapters of Genesis already after the fall of, into sin. We find that the culture of humanity quickly devolves into a society where violence and revenge are the governing values. That's the story of Cain and Abel. That's the story of Lamech. Maybe a lesser known story in those opening chapters, but, but Lamech loves, he has a thirst for violence and for revenge. It's the story of Noah that all of humanity had become corrupt and their hearts were set on doing what was wrong all the time, the Bible says. And so culture had been so stained and, and even, we could say, depraved by the effects of sin. Selfishness, greed, lording power over people became the norm in post-fall cultures. And so here is where the Great Commission, the work of evangelism, enters into this cultural mandate. The path to cultural renewal, in the fullest sense, comes through the proclamation of the gospel. Hearts that are changed. People who want to live for Christ, who know Christ, who are influential in business places and in government and in, in every sphere of life. The proclamation of the gospel is the avenue through which we will see cultural renewal in our own nation. So do you pray that the church would be more fruitful and would multiply? Do you pray that there would be fruit to your evangelistic efforts with your neighbors? And not just for that individual's sake, but for the renewal even of the culture around us that God wants us to cultivate and care for. William Wilberforce is perhaps, I think, one of the greatest examples of this over the last 300 years. William Wilberforce was really the, the point of the spear by which God um, brought down the, uh, the African slave trade in England. William Wilberforce was a Christian man 
Um, not during his whole life, but he became uh, a very zealous evangelical Christian um, a, a little bit later in his life, in his teens. And when he learned about what was happening, how people made in the image of God were being treated in the African slave trade, his heart was set for the rest of his life on ruining that sinful industry, on changing culture. And it was an uphill battle. He was mocked. He was um, cast out of, of, of various social situations. But eventually, even I believe it was a week or two before he died, um, the African slave trade was outlawed. And this thing that he worked almost his entire life for was accomplished by prayer and by serving Christ for, in his example, in the legislature, in the parliament of the United Kingdom. And so here's what William Wilberforce said about creating a culture that is pleasing to God. I love this quote. He said, this is towards the end of his life, I must confess that my own solid hopes for the well-being of my country depend not so much on her navies and armies, nor on the wisdom of her rulers, nor on the spirit of her people, but on the persuasion that, still, that she still contains many who love and obey the gospel of Christ, I believe that their prayers may yet still prevail. So he recognized there's still so much to be done in creating a, a culture that is more pleasing to God, but he says my hope for that is not because we've created some good rules or because we've got a strong army, or certainly at this point the British Navy was the strongest in the whole world with no rival, that's not our hope for creating a culture here or abroad that would be pleasing to God, but that more and more people would love and obey the gospel of Christ. That's the avenue of cultural renewal. And that doesn't just mean that cultural renewal happens in a church. It means that those who obey and love the gospel of Christ, who then go out into workplaces, into schools, into factories, and onto farms, that they will build culture in those places that is pleasing to God. That was Wilberforce's hope, and I think it's right in line with what our hope should be for this nation, for this state, for our town. That many would love and obey the gospel of Christ, and through this there would be cultural renewal. That it's not just pleasing to God, but that it's good for all Americans. So just as I close, very, two very quick applications of this passage. First, the passage teaches, the rest of Scripture teaches, all of history confirms that no person other than Christ can be the Savior of the world, but at the same time, God commands us to care for the world. That no person save Christ can be the Savior, but on the other hand, God does call us to be active, to be fruitful, to work hard to care for the world that he's made. The Christian walks a fine line between overestimating what we can do in fixing the world while at the same time avoiding the mistake of shirking our God-given responsibility to care for the world, to create culture that is pleasing to God. So you can see it's a fine line there. We don't want to overestimate our ability, our individual human ability in this matter of fixing the environment or of of uh, creating a culture that would be perfect, utopian. We don't want to overestimate it, but neither do we want to fall away from the responsibility God has given us to work, to be active in these matters. So to correct this error, we can read Paul's teaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He's teaching about how the gospel goes forth and how churches are built. And we can certainly apply this to culture as well. 
When one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, and so Paul did something. He was active. Apollos watered it. There's what he should be doing, and it was God who made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So, brothers and sisters, sow and plant and work and raise children, teach, love your neighbors, take care of the environment, and trust God as you do all these things. Secondly and finally, the text also prompts you to ask of yourself, is what is happening around me, are the people around me blessed because of my following Christ? Am I producing fruit? Are you a fruitful person in your home, in this church, in your workplace, in the school that you attend? The culture that values God will be fruitful. This passage telling us to be fruitful and multiply isn't just the the overall cultural instruction, though. This is a personal instruction to you. Is what is around you fruitful because of your following Christ? Your everyday decisions at home can make your home more fruitful or less. Your everyday decisions in your workplace, at church, wherever you go, will contribute either to a more Christian society or a less fruitful culture around you. So for the Christian, the result of your presence should be that people's lives are blessed, that people would know the truth, that they would feel appreciated and valued, that they would know something of Christ because of your attitude and your conduct and your speech. All of these are the fruit of a Christian who's living in step with the Spirit. Likewise, the church that operates in the power of the Spirit will yield the fruit of the Spirit. And so be fruitful and multiply isn't just something for families or for broadly speaking cultures. This is an instruction for the church, for our church. Are we being fruitful and multiplying? I know that people get hung up on numbers right away when they think about that, but hopefully we can see the spiritual fruit of people following Christ as a result of the ministry here and that that would even be multiplied among us. So the congregational application, are we just gathering on a Sunday to get what we want to consume or do we desire to be a fruitful church, to make it a fruitful place to be in the spiritual sense? I pray that in the week ahead that you will keep your eyes fixed on Christ like those medieval peasants would have seen the church from everywhere in their village and that the result of knowing Christ the result of knowing that God has authority over you and over the whole world would be that he has blessed you with new life in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you would know that you are loved, you are blessed, so that you might be a cultivator of life, that you might be one who is fruitful, and that it is just without doubt that you are in Christ because everything around you is thriving, is peaceful, is hopeful, is moving in the direction that God wants it to go. 
the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.